Welcome back to the Baseball Rabbit Hole, the show where I ask a baseball question of the internet and follow the rabbit holes that it opens up. I'm your host, Michael Cotton, and this is Game 2, Second Inning. Over the past few years, MLB has made some progress in the area of gender diversity in baseball. Kim Ng became the first general manager when she was hired by the Florida Marlins in 2020, and Rachel Balkovic is the first female manager in MLB history as she takes the helm of the Tampa Tarpons in 2022, a low-A affiliate of the New York Yankees. Across the league, women have started to break into the coaching ranks of MLB, but I was wondering who the first women were to play professional baseball. Thanks to Hollywood, you are all probably thinking the same thing I was. A league of their own, right? Well, despite that being a damn good baseball movie, it seems like that league might have been about 70 years behind. And now, we're down our first rabbit hole. One. The first organized women's baseball teams were being formed in the mid-1800s in the Northeast due to a proliferation of women's colleges in the area like Vassar, Smith, Wellesley, and Mount Holyoke. Women had obviously been playing on local teams in some places, but outside of these colleges, it would have mainly been on men's teams if they were allowed to play at all. Professional women's teams would soon follow as barnstormers started traveling the country. The Boston Bloomers are thought to be the first of these. They got their name from the harem-style pants they wore while playing, and the term Bloomer Girls seems to be a bit of a catch-all for the various women's barnstorming teams that started popping up all over the country. In 1891, the Cincinnati Reds took the field against the Mahanoy City baseball team in Pennsylvania, Sorry if I messed up that city name. I have no idea. Um, but in and no, it wasn't the Reds that were the first professional baseball team or the Reds that claimed to be that team, although they weren't. It was a female barnstorming team called the Cincinnati Reds because I guess trademarks and copyright laws just didn't apply to baseball teams back then. Anyway. The Cincinnati Reds were very impressed by the 13-year-old pitcher from Mahanoy City and immediately recruited her to play for them. Lizzie Arlington was the starting pitcher and only girl on that team. She took the Reds up on the offer and played for them for the next three seasons. She moved on to New York where she played for the Young Ladies Baseball Club of New York and the New York Stars. Records of her teams for the next few years seem to have been lost to whatever eats the records of baseball history, but she returned to make history in 1898. Promoter William J. Connor found Lizzie and offered $100 a month to play baseball. He then got her on to an Atlantic minor league team. She played on the Philadelphia Nationals reserve team in a number of exhibition games throughout the summer. But her big day was July 5th, 1898 in Reading, Pennsylvania. 
the Reading Coal Heavers had a five-run lead over the Allentown Peanuts in the ninth inning when Lizzie Arlington took the mound as the first woman to play professional baseball. She got into a bases-loaded jam, but was able to get the next three batters in order to complete the game. Sadly, Lizzie Arlington never got another chance to play for the Coal Heavers. She was scheduled to play in Hartford, but the snowflakes of the time couldn't handle playing a woman and forced Redding to not let her play. She played out the season in exhibition games, but it wasn't the box office draw that Connor had been hoping for, so that part of her career ended too. That one historic inning had been the first and last for Lizzie Arlington as she never played in a regulation professional game again. She returned to women's baseball and continued playing, but there's no record of her beyond her stint in the minors. And let me just point something out here. I guess when I say professional baseball, I mean like in a league, all that stuff. Obviously, barnstormers were being paid and they were basically professionals, but those were kind of like the semi-pro leagues and all of that. So there's kind of a gray area there, but for the purposes of this, I'm talking about uh, teams that were in actual minor leagues or major leagues or whatever. Lizzie Arlington was the first and unfortunately only got the one inning and another woman would not return to a men's professional team for another 33 years. And when it happened, it was against two of the all-time great baseball players. But that's for after the break. Right now, I've got to beg for some dough. So I will see you on the other side. Hey, listeners. I wanted to let you all know, if you want to support this podcast financially, you can do so by going over to patreon.com and searching for Baseball Rabbit Hole. There are different benefits at different tiers, which you can read about over there. Thank you for all of your support. I really appreciate it. Now, back down the rabbit hole. Jackie Mitchell moved to Memphis, Tennessee as a toddler. The family found an apartment, and as luck would have it, next door to their new home lived a professional baseball player. Dazzy Vance pitched in the major leagues for 16 seasons between 1915 and 1935. He was most well-known for his time with the Brooklyn Dodgers, but he also played for Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Cincinnati, and the Yankees. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1955. When the Mitchells moved in next door, he was not the famous player that he would become, but he was on his way. And Jackie's father, Joe, was an avid baseball fan, so Dazzy was a friend of the family. Soon, he began teaching Jackie to play baseball when she was around five years old, and he's the one that taught her how to pitch. Jackie was an all-around athlete and spent her teenage years barnstorming on both basketball and baseball teams. She played for the Engelettes in Chattanooga, which was owned by a scout for the Washington Senators named Joe Engel. Wait, his team was called the Engelettes? Oh, good lord, that's bad. Ugh. Anyway, Joe Engel also owned a minor league team in Chattanooga that he named the Lookouts, that played in none other than 
Engel Stadium. Of course it was, right? This guy's naming everything after himself. I'm really surprised he chose Lookouts and didn't just call his team the Anglers or something like that. Anyway, in 1931, the Lookouts' second season, Engel had the Yankees scheduled for an exhibition game on April 1st. The Yankees were traveling north from spring training and often played warm-up games against minor league teams on the way. That's when Engel decided to sign Jackie Mitchell. She was playing basketball in Dallas at the time, but immediately returned to Chattanooga for the opportunity to sign a professional baseball contract. On March 28, 1931, at the age of 17, Jackie Mitchell became the second woman on a professional baseball team and was available to play that game against the Yankees. The game got rained out on April 1st, so they played it the next day. Clyde Barfoot was the starter, and he immediately gave up a double and a single to start the game. The next batter was none other than Babe Ruth, and the lookouts decided to pull their starter. They sent Jackie Mitchell into the game to face the great Bambino himself. The lefty with a funky sidearm delivery and a nasty curveball took the mound to face possibly the greatest left-hand hitter that ever played, followed by Lou Gehrig, who is possibly the greatest left-hand hitter that ever played. Despite the two hitters being two of the greatest names in baseball history, it completely makes sense to send Jackie out to face them due to the lefty-on-lefty matchup. Jackie Mitchell was up to the task and got Babe Ruth to swing twice before ringing him up by painting the corner on the outside. The Sultan of Swat took a seat on four pitches, and according to news reports, he was not very happy about it. Next up was the Iron Horse, and Jackie sent him back to the bench with three swings and misses. The following batter was Tony Lazari, a right-hander. Mitchell walked him, and she was then pulled from the game. Jackie Mitchell immediately became a legend for striking out Ruth and Gehrig, but as often happens to barrier breakers, things did not go as well after the game. It is rumored that the commissioner of baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, a known racist that made sure to keep baseball segregated for the entire 25 years he was commissioner, voided her contract saying that women would be too delicate for baseball. It was also widely speculated across the media that the entire thing was a stunt set up by Angle. Angle has been accused of getting Ruth and Gehrig to take a dive when they faced Jackie Mitchell. Most of the media accounts of the story discounted her ability and the media then quickly moved on, which is why this story is still not widely known. Adding to the lack of belief in the accomplishment was that Engel was known as a showman who had continued to pull off plenty of stunts throughout the years, and Babe Ruth always seemed to be game for having a bit of fun on the diamond. Going against this narrative, though, is Lou Gehrig. He was the absolute opposite of this. Gehrig was known to be a no-nonsense type of guy that wanted everything to be above board. None of the participants in that game ever said that the duel between the Yankees, Greats, and Mitchell was a fake, and I feel it is highly likely that she did actually strike the hitters out. The fact is, lefty hitters do not hit lefty pitchers well, 
and Jackie Mitchell had an unorthodox delivery, plus a very good curveball to go along with the sinker she learned from Dazzy Vance. That combination is probably the worst thing a left-handed hitter could ever face, especially if they only have one chance to do it. Regardless, they never played against her again because Jackie Mitchell did not play with the lookouts again. She finished out the summer with the Junior Lookouts, a semi-pro team owned by Angle, and then later barnstormed as a pitcher for the House of David, who paid her as much as $1,000 a month, but decided to call it quits in 1937, having grown tired of the barnstorming life. Well, there seems to be a little bit of a trend here. Women pitchers getting one inning and then never really getting to play again at that level. But... I promise the next story is going to be a little bit better since the next woman I'm going to tell you about actually got to play full seasons on a major league baseball team. More on that after the break. Hey, everybody. You know what this podcast needs? More listeners like you. If you want to help me out, Please share this podcast around to your friends and let them all know that they should subscribe as well. Another way to support the podcast would be to give me a five-star rating somewhere on the internet wherever podcasts are rated. Thanks, and now back down the rabbit hole. So, I didn't just happen to want to know more about women ballplayers because of recent events. What actually got me going was a trip to Kansas City that I took in the summer of 2021. My sons and I joined the Lost Boys, Inc. on a trip to Kansas City. The Lost Boys are a nonprofit that provides mentorship and baseball on the south side of Chicago. We went down to Kansas City to watch the Chicago White Sox take on the Royals, but even more importantly, we were going to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum on 18th and Vine. The museum has an amazing collection of exhibits, memorabilia, and history about a time in baseball when the country was segregated and black people were not allowed to play on Major League Baseball teams. Well, in that museum, there was an exhibit about the women who made their mark in the Negro Leagues. Among those women, there were three that played baseball in the Negro Leagues in the 1950s. I learned a ton of new information at the NLBM that day. But those three women might have been the biggest surprise for me. Their names were Tony Stone, Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan. Then, about a month or so later, an announcement was made that the Negro Leagues were going to be officially recognized as one of the major leagues of baseball. If you learn about the teams and players and history of the Negro Leagues, it is apparent that they have always been deserving of this designation, and it came far too late. What it also meant was that those three women I'd learned about were not just the first three to play in the Negro Leagues. They were the only women to play professionally in the major leagues. So while there were a couple of women that were professional baseball players, the first to play in the major leagues was Tony Stone back in 1953. Tony Stone was born in 1921 as Marcinia Lyle Stone. When she was 10 years old, 
her family moved to St. Paul, Minnesota, where she began playing baseball with the boys in the Rondo neighborhood. Although her mother tried to get her interested in other hobbies and sports, Marcinia was in love with baseball. Her family's priest saw how well she could pitch and suggested she try out for the Claver Catholic Church's baseball team. It was a boys' team, and the coach was not as progressive-minded as that priest was, so she did not get much of a chance. She switched to girls' softball in order to get more playing time, but it wasn't really the sport she wanted to play. She never gave up on breaking into baseball and would go down to watch baseball instruction camps where she would harass the coach, Gabby Street, who ran the school and was also an ex-major league catcher and the manager of the St. Paul Saints, the local minor league team. Despite his best efforts, Marcinia refused to go away until he finally gave her a shot to play. She excelled. By the time she was 16, she'd started to go by the name Tony Stone and was barnstorming on the weekends with the Twin City Colored Giants, where she played against men. She was making two or three bucks a game playing baseball, so she eventually dropped out of high school to make her living as a ball player. Her time with the Colored Giants ended when she moved to San Francisco where her sister lived. She worked as a forklift operator and in a cafeteria, but she still longed for the opportunity to play baseball. She eventually got another chance with an American Legion team. The team was actually an under-17 team, so she lied about her age in order to play. There are some conflicting dates as I look through some of this stuff, so it's unclear exactly how long she played for the American Legion team and when exactly she joined the semi-pro San Francisco Sea Lions. The Sea Lions played in the West Coast Negro League, which only existed in 1946 when the league folded after half a season. They then became a barnstorming team up and down the West Coast in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. By 1949, we know that Tony Stone was on the Sea Lions and traveling with them. By this time, she was 28 years old and was not really happy with the amount of playing time she was getting with the team. So she jumped to the New Orleans Creoles, who were actually known for hiring women to play and coach their teams. The Creoles were also a semi-pro team playing in the Southern Negro League, but they did get the opportunity to go up against the Kansas City Monarchs, who were one of the premier teams in the history of the Negro Leagues. Tony played for the Creoles until 1952. In 1953, she got her big break. Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier six years earlier, in 1947, and by this time, many of the other MLB teams were picking up the best players out of the Negro Leagues as well. This practice was depleting the Negro Leagues of much of their appeal, and they were struggling. In 53, the Milwaukee Braves had signed Henry Aaron away from the Indianapolis Clowns, so there was an opening on the team. At 32 years old, Tony Stone went to a tryout and finally made the big leagues, replacing one of the all-time greatest players in the history of this game. She played in 50 games with the Clowns in 1953, but in 1954, she was moved to the Kansas City Monarchs, where she was given considerably less playing time. She officially retired after the 1954 season. 
Tony Stone had broken the gender barrier in baseball in the same way that Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier. Sadly, Tony was subject to the same type of ignorance and hatred that Jackie had gone through. The men on her own team often refused to talk to her. She never had a proper place to dress for the games because she wasn't allowed in the locker room ever. And she dealt with constant misogyny of men telling her she should be home cooking or knitting. It was not a good experience, and she was also on the wrong side of 30. It had taken her 16 years to work up from American Legion Ball to the Indianapolis Clowns. That is an amazing accomplishment in itself. But her prime years were used up during the climb. That is not to say that she couldn't hold her own in that league. She played second base for two seasons and had a career batting average of 243. In 53, she got a chance to face the great Satchel Paige, and she was able to get a hit off of possibly the greatest pitcher to ever throw. So, if you're sitting here wondering why she didn't try to give the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League a try, it was because she wasn't allowed to. Although Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in men's baseball, women's baseball was still segregated, although they didn't say it like that. What they said was that women who looked like Tony Stone did not meet the beauty standards they required of their players. You know, it's probably not that hard to figure out what they thought wasn't exactly beautiful about Tony Stone. So her only option was to play against the men and prove that she belonged, which she did. Tony Stone not only broke through to become the first female Major League Baseball player, but she opened the door for others as well. Stone could play, and she brought fans to the games. So the clowns started looking for other women that could do the same. And by the end of the 1953 season, she was joined by Mamie Peanut Johnson, who was a pitcher. Because Tony was sent to the Monarchs the following year, she did not get a chance to play with Connie Morgan, who was also signed by the Clowns in 1954. After she retired from baseball, Stone returned to Oakland to be with her husband and become a nurse. In 1990, MLB Hall of Fame included her in both the Women in Baseball and the Negro League Baseball exhibits, and St. Paul dedicated a baseball field in her name. In 93, she was inducted into the International Women's Sports Hall of Fame. Tony Stone died in 1996 at the age of 75. The recognition she began getting in the 90s continues to grow after her death. There have been two plays written and performed about her life, and she has been nominated the last two years for the Society of American Baseball Research, or SABRE, Dorothy Seymour Mills Lifetime Achievement Award for contributions to women's baseball. And the San Francisco Giants honored her as they commemorated Juneteenth in 2021 while wearing replica San Francisco Seals uniforms. Well, as I got to the end of this inning, I found one other unfortunate rabbit hole. It seems that Major League Baseball is only recognizing the seven major Negro Leagues that operated between 1920 and 1948. What this means is that, although I think Tony Stone should go down as the first woman to play in the Major Leagues, she might not qualify because she did not play for the Indianapolis Clowns until 1953. 
It would not surprise me if that is a decision MLB makes. But I'm sticking with her as the first. And if you run the replay in real time, I don't know how you would be able to overturn that call. You're out! As I said at the start of the podcast, there are more and more women getting spots in Major League Baseball. In fact, since I started working on this inning of the baseball rabbit hole, there have been two more big stories, with Alyssa Nacken becoming the first woman to coach in a regular season Major League game. And Kelsey Whitmore has been signed to pitch with the Staten Island Ferryhawks of the Atlantic League. So despite the process taking a very, very long time, progress is still being made. Thanks for coming along down this rabbit hole with me. There's no way this podcast is enough to talk about these women and all the women in baseball, but I hope it's at least enough to get you interested so that you will go and find out more. As for me, I'm heading back to the bench for a bit. So until next time, keep rounding those bases. The Baseball Rabbit Hole is written, researched, recorded, performed, edited, sort of mixed, and every other possible thing that you could do for a podcast, all by Michael Cotton. Thank you, and please tell a friend to listen. (laughs) 